Today's episode is brought to you by We Break You Buy. Interested in sports cards and memorabilia? Check out We Break You Buy on TikTok. We Break You Buy is a small operation run by three brothers offering spots for a chance at winning some incredible sports cards and memorabilia. That's We Break You Buy. Check it out today on TikTok. for today how are you doing i'm fantastic i always enjoy a friday evening recording yeah who can't i mean we have the the whole weekend um Do. it's just full of opportunity but if, but before we get to really dig into the weekend we get to dig into the chasm a little bit yes the um the deep channel underwater channel by the way everyone this is why wasn't it better in case you were wondering I'm your host, Patrick Darms. And I'm your co-host, Anton Paras. And I'm, I'm glad we were, we were uh, able to kind of keep folks on their toes with this uh, not our usual opening. Yeah. In case you started playing the podcast that's called Why Wasn't It Better and you weren't sure what it was, we're here <laughs> to tell you because that's our job. Yeah, here we are. I feel like creating a podcast intro is always an organic process. This just became the default one because, frankly, we didn't really know what else to do. It, it made the most sense at the time and we stuck with it. And mm -hmm. if, it's, if you got a good thing going, why change it? We're having fun, so no complaints for me. We certainly had more fun than the folks who participated in the making of the movie that we're discussing on today's episode, I can tell you that. Yeah, um, from some respects, uh, it was a very traumatic yeah. experience. Yeah, let's let's say it was challenging. That's the polite way of saying it. But before we get to all that, uh, a little bit of admin, as always, if you are a newer listener and you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button or follow button or whatever that button is called on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast. That goes for our YouTube audience as well. We appreciate all the followers or the subscribers that we can get. And the Patreon is coming. We're in the process of developing that. So you're going to hear an announcement on that in the coming weeks. Um, we keep teasing it. We are going to do it. I yes, promise. we are. Uh, in the meantime, you may notice if you're listening on Spotify that you have the option of contributing to our podcast in a monetary fashion. So if you do so feel inclined, we would appreciate it. Be very grateful for any dollars or foreign currency that you would like to throw our way because I always want to acknowledge our international listeners. We have uh, a pretty steady listener base in Sweden, in Norway, in the UK and Japan and really all over the world. But I wanted to give a shout out to those countries because um, they have been growing in the previous couple of months. So Anton, anything else we want to get out of the way? I think I think that covers the admin. The admin is pretty much the same every week. Yeah, but. I think we're I think we're good. I mean, the only other thing we'll mark this day is the day that I will always remember the 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 league snubbed a healthy Steph Curry as a starter uh, in the NBA All Star game. Yeah, Jalen Brunson too. That's really. Yeah. I'm actually, I know you're, we're both biased in our own ways, but I'm more surprised by the Brunson snub than I am the Curry snub. You could always make the case the Warriors are having a disappointing season so far, but the Knicks are doing really well. 
They've been yeah. playing great, especially the past month. Like if Brunson didn't make the an all-star team at all, I'd be really shocked. But I feel like he's going to at least be a reserve. But I agree with you. Definitely a case where we should have seen at least one of those players a starter. Yeah, I mean, the, the Dame Lillard thing, you were right. It's just like media hype. And it, it must be the... the um you know, the the loud Milwaukee fans who are just padding those voting stats. Oh, I'm sure. Um, to which I can say, you can have your all-star starter status for Lillard right now, but um, good luck with Doc Rivers coaching your team in the playoffs. I'm sure that's going to turn out great for you. Definitely a head scratcher. Um, yeah. Man hasn't won a championship since 2008. Yeah, but uh, yeah, we don't need to get into all that. But we, we have a different journey to dive deep into. We do. I just realized we once again dated this episode. We try to keep these things evergreen. By the time listeners hear this, the, the all-star stuff we were just talking about is going to be long gone, but that's okay. Whatever. <laughs> okay, well, today's film is The Abyss. It's directed by James Cameron. You may have heard of it, and you may have heard of James Cameron. He is a, uh, I'd say, a fairly well-known filmmaker. Generally. You've also probably figured out by now there's no guest for this week. We will have a guest, a return guest next week. We are going to be talking about another James Cameron film next week. It's the 30th anniversary this year of True Lies. So we thought, well, why not cover that? Why not cover two Cameron films in a row? We've actually, I don't think we've done that on the podcast yet, have we? It's we the have, first. We have not. So we're definitely giving uh, Mr. Jim Cameron a lot of love. Yeah, we gave him a mediocre amount of love last season when we talked about the very mediocre Avatar The Way of Water. Well, let's see how much love we give this film. Yes, this film has a lot of love by its fans. It really does. Um, this is a really interesting film to cover, and I'm looking forward to it. So let's get into this. Um, I'll intro this for us, and then, yeah, we'll, we'll just we'll dive right into the deep end. The Abyss. Bud and Lindsay Brigman are an estranged couple. They are petroleum engineers who still have some issues to work out. They, along with their crew on an underwater drilling rig, are drafted to assist a gung-ho team of Navy SEALs with a top-secret recovery operation. A nuclear submarine has been sunk under mysterious circumstances in some of the deepest waters on Earth. The Abyss was released on July 9th, 1989 by 20th Century Fox, written and directed by James Cameron, starring Ed Harris, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio, Michael Bean. Leo Burmeister, Todd Graff, John Bedford Lloyd, J.C. Quinn, Kimberly Scott, and Chris Elliott. The budget estimate on this was $43 million to $70 million, and that is $106 to $173 million adjusted for inflation. And the box office was only $90 million. That's $222 million adjusted for inflation. So not very great return on investment there. Anton. Why have you chosen The Abyss for this week's episode? Well, like you mentioned, uh, James Cameron is a pretty, you know, we, we may be undersold a little bit, but pretty influential director in Hollywood. And his works definitely make quite the impression. I think like it, his movies are some of the most fun films to talk about and not necessarily just because of you know, the end product itself, but also just the production involved. And I feel like 
when we start to talk more about like what was put into what was the work put into making the abyss like it it's been documented just how arduous of a process it is we've already talked about just how dedicated um, james cameron is to his vision and so just being able to talk about like the abyss um a film that you know like you said has its definitely has its strong following when i was younger i was i hadn't seen anything like it i'll tell you that and i remember enjoying it uh when i was you know when i was younger i think i saw this film like a, later in high school just because it was also something that was on tv i remember seeing it on like tnt or something like that and yeah james cameron in the abyss i mean it's a uh, quite a film but you know, Pat, why are we interested in discussing The Abyss today? Well, I, I mean, you did a good job of summarizing like the James Cameron of it all. I think that's obvious. This is certainly a cult classic because, you know, we mentioned the box office, right, when we when we introed it. Uh, this film was a box office failure. It's really the only box office failure of Cameron's career, but it's had a life of its own. It has a lot of fans. It's developed a huge following over the years. And it is an interesting film, not only just because of James Cameron making it, but another bonus of really covering this now is it is the 35th anniversary of this coming up in August. But on March 12th of this year, after forcing fans to wait an eternity, Cameron is finally releasing this film and True Lies in newly restored proper 4K formats. So The Abyss was always on our list of films to cover, but we decided to accelerate it to now because why not? It's the perfect occasion. Uh, a lot of people were very excited that this is finally coming to 4K. And I am too, because obviously, you know, the the, um, the copy that I watched for the podcast, you know, mm -hmm. just in the past couple of days, you know, it was it's it was fine when it came out in the early 2000s i'm sure as a dvd but by today's standards it was tough to watch in some parts just because of how jaded i've been by blu-ray and 4k but another thing too i completely missed this but last december it was in theaters but only for one day and i'm kind of mad that i missed it because this would have been great to see on the big screen this is exactly the type of movie that you want to see on the big screen right oh absolutely i mean all of james cameron's films deserve like a to, to see it on the big screen absolutely you know even all like all the crap that i gave the avatar sequel i'm still glad that i saw it in the theater it was awesome it was an awesome theater experience even if it was three hours because hey if anything how else does james cameron know how to make a scene look grand he knows how to do it he's one of the best at it he is in the pantheon of all-time great action directors there's no doubt about that but there was a lot of hype for this in 1989 right at that point in james cameron's career he had really done like two and a half films he kind of took over piranha 2 the spawning but he's kind of distanced himself from that for obvious reasons i've never seen it so i don't know what to tell you there but 1984 he writes and directs the terminator 1986 aliens which was a massive success that was an instant classic and even so even at this point early in his career he would have been 35 36 when this film came out in 89 so he was pretty young right Jeez. so even at this early point in his career he was becoming one of the most famous most innovative filmmakers in the world you mentioned how you have never you had never really seen anything like this at the time when you saw it Ditto for me. I mean, I still haven't really seen anything like this movie. I've seen a lot of movies try to copy this film in some ways with the underwater stuff, but this is still the best underwater photography I've ever seen. I'll give it that. There was a lot of hype around this film when it was coming out. 
specifically about the production, which was infamously challenging, and it's still regarded as one of the most difficult shoots of all time, even to this day. Books have been written about it. There's a really good documentary about it that's available on YouTube right now. Uh, it's called Under Pressure. I think it was basically made with Cameron's approval because he's featured in it quite heavily, and it, it's um, it shows some of his more let's let's call it um, um, totalitarian methods that he. Mm-hmm is famous for directing on set. So it's pretty interesting. But this film has a curious legacy, right? Dud at the box office, cult following sense. A lot of people that love this film will tell you that it's Cameron's most underrated film. Some people will even go so far as to say this is Cameron's best film, which I think is ridiculous. But And until this film is released on 4K in a couple of weeks, this is the really curious part of its legacy. It's basically been impossible to find anywhere for the longest time. Physical media, and I mean standard DVD was the only way to watch this. Occasionally it would pop up on like a premium cable channel like Stars or HBO or anything, but I have never seen this available on a streaming service. So that's 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 the real reason why I've never revisited this until we had to do it for this podcast, right? Like I was trying to think when you said you wanted to cover it, I'm like, when is the last time I saw The Abyss? 15, 20 years ago. Easy. Right. And we touched on this like an episode or two ago. It's getting harder to see these you know classic films on streaming platforms so it's even more noble i think to be able to cover a film like this just so we're really making sure it stays on top of audiences minds you're absolutely right and this one you know more than uh, far more than others right this was super rare this was ultra rare to use a pokemon term yeah there we go i don't know what the rights were surrounding this because when we cover true lies next week true lies had a very similar situation where it was just never on blu-ray right but true lies is something that has been available on streaming services you know in the past few years right like it was on netflix for a while like a, a couple years ago it's on tubi the free streaming platform right now like you can find true lies but the abyss it was just for whatever reason it you couldn't find it but here's the question. Is this a real classic? That's what we are going to explore today. We are going to explore the depths of this. Oh, I see what you did there. Um, Thank you. Quick before we jump into uh, the production, I know we mentioned this was an underrated film. Just out of curiosity, do you have a particular film that you enjoyed that was underrated? We covered it, Rising Sun. Yeah, I agree with that. I could give you a whole list of stuff yeah. that I think is underrated if, if you gave me some time. Yeah, no, I'd have to think about that. I I always thought Tron Legacy was a bit underrated. Um, If you just want to go based on like Rotten Tomatoes score alone, Mm -hmm. when we covered um, The Last Samurai, that film has always been underrated to me. Um, Even something like League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, I know neither of us gave it a particularly high rating. The Rotten Tomatoes score in that was like 17%, which is just like abysmal. And we both agreed, and our guest Garrett did as well. Like that's it's 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 a far better film than Seventeen. Oh yeah, absolutely. One for me, uh, the game, David Fincher. Oh yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, that movie blows my mind. Yeah. Oh, he, Fincher has a few underrated films. Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, I think, is underrated. Yeah, agree with that for sure. Uh, I almost said Zodiac was underrated, but I don't think it is. <laughs> no, I think. Well, you know what? I don't think that. Uh, I don't think it gets as much love as Fincher's other films. So I think absolutely it goes in that underrated bucket. Real fans know like, yeah, it's a a great quality film, but I think it's one of the best films of the turn since the turn of the millennium of the two thousands. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it it is very highly rated, but you like I I just realized this recently. It didn't get nominated for a single Academy Award, which is insane to me. Right, and I figure we should probably we're we're gonna eventually talk about this film, Zodiac. Oh yeah, I think we're gonna have to now. We just talked ourselves into it. Yeah, because it is such a fun movie, and people. I don't think that a lot of people knew what they were getting into watching the film. No, I agree with you on that. I don't think I'm burying the lead. I'm, I would give that an A plus. Like that, that's one of the best movies I've seen. Oh, it's just it's spectacular what they do with it. But anyway, it's unbelievable. We, we've uh, <laughs> we've we, we've started to double down on Zodiac. Maybe let's uh, yeah, l- that's okay. Yeah. yeah, it's fine. Let's look back into the abyss and see if it looks at us. By the way, that Nietzsche quote is apparently um, featured in the very beginning of the special edition of this film. Nice. (laughs) We're not talking about the special edition, but we are, of course, going to mention it. Anton, let's switch it up this week. Why don't you start the production history? Oh, gladly. As we tease in the introduction, this is one of the most well-known, I mean, infamously difficult productions in the history of Hollywood. And, you know, to say it was plagued by problems is really putting it mildly. Uh, there, um, you know, Pat, you mentioned that there is a really famous making of documentary. It's available on YouTube. It's called Under Pressure. Um, and we definitely invite our uh, listeners to go check it out if you want to know more. So first, the idea of The Abyss came to James Cameron when at age 17 and in high school, he attended a science lecture about deep sea diving by a man who was the first human to breathe liquid through his lungs. Cameron wrote a short story that focused on a group of scientists in a laboratory at the bottom of the ocean. Although many details would change over the years, the basic elements of the story remain in the final film. One of the major alterations was changing the main characters from scientists to blue-collar workers. And while making Aliens, Cameron saw a National Geographic film about remote-operated vehicles operating deep in the North Atlantic Ocean. Now, these images reminded him of his short story and inspired him and producer Gail Ann Hurd, also his wife at the time, to make The Abyss as their next project. And their idea drew instantaneous interest from all the major studios. So Cameron had a completed screenplay written by 1987 with collaboration from Hurd. The couple would end up separating during filming and officially divorced two months after principal photography wrapped up in February 1989. The novelization was written by Orson Scott Card, author of Ender's Game, and a rampant homophobe. Officially, he received no credit on the film, but the rumors is that Cameron asked him to contribute to the screenplay, specifically to give the characters greater depth for the actors to use as prep material. The studio was considering Mel Gibson, Dennis Quaid, William Hurt, Harrison Ford, Kurt Russell, and Patrick Swayze for the role of Bud Brigman. And James Cameron suggested Ed Harris, but the studio was concerned about his lack of experience as a leading man as well as his receding hairline, um, something that Cameron felt added to his every everyman appeal. Harris convinced the studio with a screen test where he wore a motorcycle helmet as a, dr- as a diving helmet. Jamie Lee Curtis was almost cast as Lindsay, but had to withdraw due to a scheduling conflict. Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio ended up getting the role. Curtis would, of course, later work with Cameron on True Lies. Now, because 40% of the photography was going to take place underwater, most of the cast and crew had to become certified scuba divers. Everyone trained for underwater diving for one week in the Cayman Islands to prepare. This is not surprising at all, right, from what we know about 
James Cameron. No, I have to wonder. I couldn't find this in the research, but it's like, did they offer them extra money because of the scuba requirements? I, you I have to I, think they would, yeah. right? Like that's like a that's not a typical requirement for most roles in Hollywood. Oh, by the way, we need you to become a certified diver. And for this just, film, and it's just written into the contract. Cameron had originally intended to shoot on location in the Bahamas where the story was set, but quickly realized that he needed to have a completely controlled environment because of the stunts and special visual effects involved. Underwater sequences for the film were shot at a unit of the Gaffney Studios, situated south of Cherokee Falls, outside of Gaffney, South Carolina, which had been abandoned by Duke Power officials after previously spending $700 million constructing the Cherokee nuclear power plant. So, Shout out to Duke Energy, my power provider. Yeah, there we go. Duke Energy. Why does it... Yeah. Uh, is is Duke the last name of someone? I have no idea. Yeah, no, just a quick shout out to one of my favorite animated series, um, The Critic, the uh, megalomaniac um, media conglomerate, or uh, media like tycoon in the show. Is he, He's uh, based off of Ted Turner. His name's Duke Phillips. Just wanted to throw that out there. Speaking of the critic, I've been working on my uh, my Orson Welles voice. Okay. Yes. And we'll and we'll just tease that. Yes, Orson Welles, of course, has nothing to do with this film, but uh, I, I noticed that the novelization was written by Orson Scott Card, who, of course, shares the first name of uh, Orson Welles. <laughs> oh, Orson, you charmer! Oh, how do you want me to read the ad? I mean, I mean, I'm trying to give it all I can, but this you call this drama. And he's walked off the set, and he just took a handful of peas. <laughs> Two specially constructed tanks were used. The first one, based on the abandoned plant's primary reactor containment vessel, held 7.5 million U.S. gallons, so 28,000 milliliters of water, was 55 feet deep, 18 meters, and 209 feet, so 70 meters, across. So at the time, it was the largest freshwater filtered tank in the world. And additional scenes were shot in the second tank, an unused turbine pit, which held 2.5 million U.S. gallons of water. It took five days to fill it. Just to give the listeners some idea of how big these tanks were, because 7.5 million gallons, 2.5 million gallons, sounds like a lot. I looked this up. An Olympic-sized swimming pool is about half a million gallons. So the small tank was the equivalent of five Olympic-sized swimming pools. Don't say that uh, James Cameron isn't committed to his craft. The deep core rig was anchored to a 90-ton concrete column at the bottom of the large tank. It consisted of six partial and complete modules that took over half a year to plan and build from scratch. And all the sets cost $2 million to construct. Cameron's production company had to design and build experimental equipment and develop a state-of-the-art communication system that allowed the director to talk underwater to the actors and dialogue to be recorded directly onto tape for the first time. And although the main tank was not ready in time, filming eventually began on August 15th, 1988. On the first day of shooting in the main water tank, it sprang a leak and 150,000 gallons of water a minute rushed out. The studio brought in dam repair experts to seal it. And director of photography, Mikhail Solomon, used three cameras in watertight housings that were specially designed. Pat, would you like to take it away from here? I would, because this is getting tiring, isn't it? 
Oh, I mean, lots of details. <laughs> yeah, this, is, this is like half the production history. The filmmakers had to figure out how to keep the water clear enough to shoot and dark enough to lo look realistic at 2,000 feet, which was achieved by floating a thick layer of plastic beads in the water and covering the top of the tank with an enormous tarp. At one point, the tarp ripped open and they weren't able to repair it, so it forced the production to film the underwater scenes only at night. It's just mm. outrageous. Cameron wanted to see the actors' faces and hear the dialogue, and thus he hired a company to engineer helmets which would remain optically clear underwater, yep. and he installed state-of-the-art aircraft-quality microphones into each helmet. Safety conditions were obviously a major factor, and there was a decompression chamber on site along with a diving bell and a safety diver assigned to each actor. Now, the, the pink breathing fluid used in the film, it actually exists. But it has only been thoroughly investigated in animals. And Anton, you said you found stuff online that indicates this has undergone some human testing. Is that correct? Yep. yep. I, I saw online that there has been clinical trials, um, but it didn't go deeply into what was the success or what happened. But definitely when I, I saw when I saw that in the film, I was like, whoa. <laughs> so the actors played their scenes at 33 feet of depth of water, right? 33 feet underwater. That's too shallow a depth for them to need to decompress, and they rarely stayed down for more than an hour at a time. Cameron and the entire diving crew, they sank to 50 feet. They stayed down for five hours at a time. Now, to avoid decompression sickness, they would have to hang from hoses halfway up the tank for as long as two hours breathing pure oxygen. To simulate the moment where Bud free falls rapidly underwater down an abyssal trench, Ed Harris was towed sideways across a fake rock wall. During the underwater filming, Ed Harris almost drowned a couple of mm -hmm. times and Cameron came close to drowning himself. Overchlorination led to the diver's skin burning and exposed hair being stripped off or turning white. And it also was eating through all of the wetsuits. This just this is an absolute nightmare. It really is. The, the entire process, the cast and crew, they endured over six months of this. Six-day schedule, 70 hours a week, this isolated set. At one point, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio had a, had basically an emotional breakdown on the set. When filming one of the takes where her character needs to be mm -hmm. resuscitated, she was soaking wet, topless, and repeatedly being slapped by mm -hmm. Ed Harris. The camera ran out of film, and she stormed off the set yelling, we are not animals. And on another occasion, Ed Harris burst into spontaneous sobbing while driving home. Harris has publicly refused to speak about his experiences working on the film. Whereas uh, Bill Paxton has been quoted as saying, you know, it was, pre it was a pretty good experience. I'm amazed Bill Paxton wasn't in this. I think it would have been better if he had been. Yeah. Now, Michael Bean, he claimed that he was in South Carolina for about five months, and he only acted for three to four weeks. So the cast began referring to the shoot as, quote, son of abyss, end quote, or, quote, the abuse, end quote. Cameron himself admitted, quote, I knew this was going to be a hard shoot, but even I had no idea just how hard. I don't ever want to go through this again, end quote. And then he would go on to make Titanic. Filming was <laughs> also done at the largest <laughs> underground lake in the world, a mine in Missouri, which was the background for several underwater shots. So after 140 days and over 4 million over budget, filming 
finally wrapped up on December 8th, 1988. The visual effects work was divided among seven effects divisions with motion control work by DreamQuest Images and computer graphics and opticals handled by the legendary Wizards at Industrial Light and Magic. To create the alien water tentacle, Cameron initially considered cell animation or a tentacle sculpted in clay and then animated via stop motion techniques, but Phil Tippett suggested Cameron contact ILM, and he did. ILM designed a program to produce surface waves of differing sizes and properties for the pseudopod, which is what they ended up nicknaming this thing. For the moment where it mimics Bud and Lindsay's faces, Ed Harris had his facial expression scanned and Master Antonio's uh, face was given the same treatment. ILM spent six months creating 75 seconds of computer graphics needed for the, the creature. That is how primitive CGI was in 1989. This is the very early days yeah. of CGI. And this is actually pretty cool trivia bit. This is the first feature film to have used an early version of Adobe Photoshop. That is neat. The film was supposed to open on July 4th, 1989, but its release was delayed for more than a month by the production and visual effects problems. Studio executives were understandably nervous nervous about the film's commercial prospects when preview audiences laughed at, at scenes of serious intent. Industry insiders said that the release delay was because of nervous executives ordering the film's ending to be completely reshot. Cameron decided to remove the wave sequences along with other shorter scenes elsewhere in the film, and he reduced the runtime by nearly 40 minutes, and he diminished his signature themes of nuclear peril and disarmament. Subsequent test audience screenings drew substantially better reactions. Officially, the budget is listed at $43 million. Cameron said it's closer to 47, but there is a lot of reports that put it as high as 70 million. Jeez. So if the latter is true, if you believe the 70 million, this would have been the most expensive film of all time at that point in 1989. I'm talking about unadjusted for inflation. Obviously, something like Cleopatra or Superman would have been more expensive adjusted for inflation, but just by pure dollars unadjusted, this was the most expensive film ever made at the time. It's amazing. This is really the beginning of Cameron pushing the envelope in every which way possible, right? Like if, if you know anything about the history of the making of like the Terminator and Aliens, the Aliens only had an $18 million budget. That's kind of mind boggling. And it was, of, uh, of course, uh, the set and where a lot of the filming was our good friends at. Pinewood I, Studios. I just had to make sure to put it in one episode. <laughs> Look, Anton, we, we're going to go there. Like, it's happening at some point. Yeah, It may not happen anytime soon, but we, we have to visit Pinewood Studios. Yes. Yes. Agreed. Anyway, back to the Abyss. Although it receives strong reviews, it actually has a very solid 88% Rotten Tomato score today. It was a box office disappointment. In fact, you could call it a bomb. It only grossed $90 million. It didn't cover its production and marketing costs. I mentioned this before. It is the biggest commercial disappointment of Cameron's career. And I did want to point this out before we start to talk about why wasn't it better. The summer of 1989, huge movie season. Mm -hmm. We had Batman, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, Lethal Weapon 2, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, License to Kill, Dead Poets Society, Do the Right Thing, Field of Dreams. And then later that year, in November, we got Back to the Future 2 and The Little Mermaid. So just some pretty culturally significant films. Enormously. Like, especially Batman. You, you left out Roadhouse, but I'm not going to hold it against you. So Roadhouse as well. That was 89? Yep. Oh, yeah. I must have missed that one. I don't know if you saw a trailer just dropped for the Roadhouse remake starring Jake Gyllenhaal. 
Conor McGregor plays the the muscle of the rich tycoon what? in, te- in oh, town. Oh, that sounds awesome. I don't know any of the other actors, but... Oh, I mean, I yeah. like Jake Gyllenhaal. That could be uh, good. I think it's supposed to be like an Amazon Amazon Prime movie. Oh, yeah, that could you be watched, fun. You did watch uh, the original Roadhouse, right? Of course. It's a. Uh, it it's has fun. Its hardcore. It has hardcore. I like thing. Roadhouse. It's it fun has, for what it is. I think the first half was much better than the second half. I'll have to get back to you on that. I haven't seen it in a very long time, but it it's fun. Yeah, be excited. It's supposed to release on Prime Video. March 21st of this year. Well, mark your calendars, folks. Roadhouse. I actually will. I will check that out just because I, I do like Jake Gyllenhaal a lot. I think he's a great actor. And you want to see him go toe-to-toe with Conor McGregor. Who wouldn't? It's the fight we all wanted and needed, apparently. Anyway, uh, let's talk about The Abyss and why wasn't it better. Number one, you have to start with the pacing, Anton. Mm. Let's face it. This film is not short, and the pacing <laughs> is rather slow. Dare I say waterlogged? Everything just moves slower underwater. You couldn't have said it better in just for a film that really builds itself on the tension of its characters underwater and just anything that can go wrong. That feeling of tension really outstays its welcome after you've experienced it over and over. I can understand why the Fox studio executives were concerned about this, right? So the theatrical release ended up being 140 minutes. That's chunky. And then it all takes place underwater. Yeah. I will say this, because I rewatched this basically twice in the past few days in preparation for this. The first 45 minutes, I think, are very, very good and very exciting. I think the 45-minute mark is where the storm hits and the, the, the hook cable thing that connects them to the surface vessel mm-hmm. that's where it breaks and remember it lands and it causes all this havoc and stuff I th- that happens right at about the 45 minute mark after that it's like a plug gets pulled out of the film yeah it's now now don't get me wrong i feel like it's because of the pacing it's meant to be very atmospheric right Yes, and the atmospheric part of it is very successful. This is a very, very claustrophobic film. It, it's it has a lot in common with you know like submarine thrillers. I mean, obviously underwater, whether you're in a vehicle or in like a um, a very slowly moving station vehicle, mm-hmm. right? Like this has a lot in common with submarine thrillers, and they, Cameron mm-hmm. absolutely succeeded there. The atmosphere in this is completely convincing. Absolutely, but. Everything moves slower underwater, including the action. Now, the action, I think, is very well done, but it's spaced out across mm-hmm. this, you know, 140-minute runtime, and this is hardly something you would call an action film. There's plenty of thrills, but it doesn't need to be an action film to be exciting, right? Because the two are not mutually exclusive. Right. It's interesting when I see it categorized as like science, fi- like as like a science fiction film. Uh, we know Orson Scott Card is involved but the pacing of it isn't a convention is not a conventional science fiction film nor is it a conventional like thriller or action film right i'll get to that a little bit later i have some thoughts on that exact topic as well but the original cut of this was three hours Mm -hmm. that obviously limits the number of times that a film can be shown each day in a theater that always scares studio executives. Well, at least it did back then. Apparently it doesn't now because we've talked about this before in past episodes, how films seem to be getting longer and longer. Although I'm not sure if that's actually true, but that's at least what it seems like. Right. This three hour version was released 
1993 as the so-called special edition, right? ILM was commissioned to finish the work. They had started uh, three or four years earlier. Many of the same people worked on it. The 40 minutes of deleted scenes were restored, or I guess it's really 30 minutes, right? If you include the credits, it ends up at, at uh, three hours. And there are a lot of fans of, of the, the film that prefer this special edition to the theatrical version. Now, admittedly, I have not seen the special edition. I have mm-hmm. seen bits and pieces of it on YouTube. Just a reminder, we're not here to talk about the special edition. With a couple of exceptions, we're going to talk about theatrical versions of films. This what audiences saw in the theater, that's the film that we want to talk about. And we'll we'll discuss it in one of the next reasons, or I think the the next reason, but the special edition does ground it a bit more in science fiction. Yes, it certainly does. This reminds me of Troy, right? Not the science fiction part, but the, the uh, theatrical, <laughs> the, the theatrical versus um, yeah. director's cut, right? So when we covered Troy, I think it was way back in the first season, mm-hmm. that's another long movie, right? The theatrical version of Troy is around 2.30, two hours and 30 minutes, I think. And we discuss how the much longer director's cut was ultimately a much superior film with a much more complete story. It seems like that is probably the case here. I have to admit to you, Anton, I could not bring myself to watch it. Also, I didn't even have a version of the special edition I could watch. So even if I um, wanted to, I couldn't have. But I find the theatrical version of The Abyss too long to begin with. Two hours and 20 minutes for a film underwater is an awful lot. I I could not fathom adding 40 minutes. Yeah, I mean, it still kind of goes back into that perception of when you're having a good time, it could feel like a second and it, it or it just passes by so fast. So yeah. maybe a better story does better does better pace, but I haven't seen the special edition, so I can't speak to it. I don't honestly don't have any interest in it. This is just too long to begin with. I think this would have been much better if it was an hour 40, an hour 45. I think you could cut out the submersible fight. It looks cool. I'll give you that, but it doesn't add much to the story. Mm-hmm. Cut out most of the stuff with Michael Bean's character. What's his name? Mm-hmm. Coffee. Lieutenant yeah. Coffee. Cut that stuff out. That's all I have as far as the pacing goes. Anything yeah. to add before we move on to the next reason? I'd say cut out the ending and then we're, we're, we're set. Then we've really <laughs> just, just remove the entire ending. Oh yeah. That's, that's my request. <laughs> so in your ideal scenario for this film, Bud Brigman just falls to the bottom of the ocean and dies. Yeah. The, or just completely take out the aliens altogether. Well, that's okay. Now we're going to get into the next reason, right? Which is the story. The story for me is the weakest part of the film. I think we're in agreement here. Mm -hmm. Most of the 40 minutes of the deleted footage from what I have read and from what I have seen in bits and pieces on YouTube, they are alien related. So as a result, the stuff that Cameron cut out, he cut out a lot of what should have been the main driver of the film, I think. The alien stuff is barely in the film, right? The aliens are basically in three scenes in a 140-minute film. None of the alien stuff works for me. The sci-fi elements of this story for me, they just don't click. And because that stuff doesn't click, there just there is not much of a story going on here. I'm going to have to make the comparison to the first Cameron film that we covered last season, Avatar The Way of water where we talked about there is a very thin story that is stretched across three hours i feel Mm -hmm. the same way here there's just not much of a story and it's a very long movie and because it felt so thin and because there was it it, it, and because it felt like aliens were almost an afterthought or just like not a really or or just something to move the plot along but not in a very organic way it just adds to this feeling of this 
film trudging along in a very slow pace because it really is the atmosphere and the visuals that are moving the story along, less so the actual plot itself. I completely agree. I have no evidence to support this, but my theory is that Cameron wanted to tell a story about underwater aliens, and he was encouraged to include coffee going crazy and the nuke thing subplot to give them an excuse for more action sequences. I can see that. But, because we just ragged on this film's story quite a bit, I do want to give a shout out to the acting, because mm-hmm. the lead actor in this film, Ed Harris, I think he does a tremendous job with his performance. Oh, yeah. I really like his performance in this film. Especially just considering the odds were against him in terms of not fitting the typical mold, what they looked for in a leading man in Hollywood in 1989. He really brought a lot of heart to the film. He actually probably brought the heart to the film. Oh, I think without his performance, this film would fail completely. He's completely believable in every scene. He's a Yankees fan. (laughs) And he gives what I would describe as a very, just a very authentic performance, right? Like, this is something that I think Ed Harris does well in most of his roles, right? Is mm-hmm. he just seems like a regular guy. And that's what James Cameron said, right? He wanted to cast him because, oh, he's going bald? Cool. He has an everyman quality to him. That's the appeal of Ed Harris, right? You feel like he could be, he can play so many different roles because of how just average looking of a guy he is. He could be anybody. Yeah, he could he could even be um a leading a faction of troops on on Alcatraz trying to uh, <laughs> uh make sure that uh that the rogue marines get their due um because he really believed in something. You're absolutely right. He could do that role. He could be Jackson Pollock. He could be a Nazi sniper. Uh, he could be the NASA <laughs> control room administrator. He could be a gangster following, uh, trying to catch uh, Viggo Mortensen. He could be a misguided treasure hunter. And these are all, <laughs> these are all things that only every man qualities. You're right. If any of the <laughs> listeners are wondering, you're damn right. I just referenced National Treasure Book of Secrets. <laughs> It's amazing. I think this is the first film we've covered with Ed Harris, right? Mm-hmm. Am I? I yeah. think it is. Yeah, yeah, you're right. We haven't we haven't it, talked about the good Ed Harris. Um, he's great. He really is probably one of the best actors of the past few decades, right? Like he's always mm-hmm. good. Oh yeah, I mean, I was looking at his filmography, yeah. right? I just want to rattle it off here for you. I'm going to go in chronological order. I'm gonna I'm gonna highlight these for you, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to name every film he's in because that would just take too long. Because he's been working. Pretty much nonstop for the past 40 years. So his first big breakthrough was he played John Glenn in The Right Stuff, mm-hmm. which was directed by Philip Kaufman, who directed Rising Sun. Um, not much going on for the rest of the 80s until this film, The Abyss, right? The 90s is when he really starts to take off. He has an amazing role in Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. He has a really good role in The Firm. If you remember, he plays uh, the FBI agent. Then he's in Nixon. He gets an Oscar nomination for Apollo 13. He's great in that movie. Oh, yeah. Just Cause with Sean Connery. You mentioned The Rock. I think he's amazing in The Rock. Mm -hmm. He's an absolute power. He gets another Oscar Oscar nomination for The Truman Show. He's great in that movie. Mm -hmm. He gets another, a third Oscar nomination for Pollock, which he's great in. Then he's in A Beautiful Mind. Great role. He's in Enemy at the Gates. That's where I mentioned he plays a Nazi. I love that movie. I, I do. I really like Enemy at the Gates. He's good in that movie. He gets a fourth Oscar nomination for The Hours, which is another great role. Mm-hmm. A History of Violence, which you mentioned. Yep. Gone Baby Gone, National Treasure, Book of Secrets. Yep, we're, we're heading into the more modern age now. And of course, he was in Top Gun Maverick 
in 2022, right? Right. Still working. He's apparently going to be in the MCU coming up. He's going to play Neil Sarion in Wonder Man. I don't know what that is, but it is a streaming show coming to Disney Plus, apparently, and it's part of the MCU. But I mean, working nonstop, he's probably one of the most respected actors around. I've heard that he can be difficult to work with, but I've never heard anything about him regarding right his like professionalism, right? Everybody that has worked with him says that he is one of the hardest working, most professional mm-hmm. actors around. Oh, absolutely. And this is a great performance that he delivers in The Abyss, right? The CPR scene, it's some of the most intense acting I've ever seen from Ed Harris. He's great. Mm-hmm. Even just considering his chemistry, you know, we haven't talked about the rest of the cast yet, but um, even just the chemistry with the cast, fantastic. Oh, yeah. He definitely seems like he's friends with the rest of the crew. Like it, def- it, it definitely mm-hmm. seems like they've been working together for a while. They do have good chemistry. I have to give them all credit. It kind of makes sense, right? They had no choice but to bond with each other because they were basically stuck in this fish tank for six months with each other. They had to get along. They had no other choice. Yeah, that guy really loved his rat. <laughs> he did. See, that's the role that should have been Bill Paxton. The rat? <laughs> yep. <laughs> Bell Paxton, he's better than that guy. I'm sorry. No offense to that guy, but do you think you would have liked this better if it had been any of the following? Mel Gibson, Dennis Quaid, William Hurt, Harrison Ford, Kurt Russell, or Patrick Swayze? You know, honestly, those are some pretty incredible actors. That's a great list. But I think that really, uh, you, you mentioned it earlier, you get such an authentic everyman experience with Ed Harris. And I think that it would be hard to recreate with any of those guys. I'm really intrigued by Kurt Russell. Yeah, I am. But I don't. It's tough. I don't want to take anything away from Ed Harris because he he really put the work in here. And look, I don't know if you noticed this. He's wearing a Seiko turtle in this film, Mm. which is a great watch. I own one of them. It's a real dive watch. It makes perfect sense for his character to be wearing that. And that's I just wanted to give it a shout out because James Cameron is such a stickler for details that I'm sure it was Cameron's idea to give Ed Harris's character a Seiko turtle. Oh, right. Uh, absolutely. No, nothing, no stone unturned, right? Yeah. You know, I'm a watch guy. So I just, I had to mention that Seiko, one, any one, opportunity you can talk about Seiko, you have to take it. Yeah. One quick thing on Kurt Russell. I'm, I, I, I thought about it a little bit. Probably he could have fit the everyman bill. Uh, because of yeah. course he did yeah. have a really great performance a few years before in um it was that it was the John Carpenter classic Big Trouble in Little China where he played Everyman Jack Burton. Oh, you know that's on our list, Anton. And I will fight to the death that that's an amazing film. I love Big Trouble in Little China. <laughs> so good. It's such a fun movie. That's another one where I'm like, I have never seen anything like this. Maybe that's a good thing because I don't know if more versions of Big Trouble in Little China would be good, but I love it for what it is. I have not seen anything like it, nor is there anything like that in uh, John Carpenter's just filmography. No, you're right. It was a one-off. <laughs> yeah. It was a weird summer for him. When he yeah, that's, um, geez, what a movie. There is so much there. Um, it's so much fun. Yeah, and I, I love it when uh, younger generations get introduced to it and say, they made films like this. Yeah, all the low pan references we can make. Yep, um, the thunder and lightning. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Back to the cast of The Abyss. Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio, what do you think? Uh, I thought that, you know, she she really, you know, put up a, a good performance. I think that while she's not, like, you know, my favorite actress, I think that she definitely 
went through a lot. She did what she was supposed to do. The common belief is that she was written to be the stand-in for Gail Ann Hurd, who Cameron was in the process of divorcing during mm. the making of this film. By the way, shout out to Gail Ann Hurd because she is not just an ex-wife of James Cameron. She is a pretty well-known producer. Mm-hmm. Um, she would. She's actually involved in the MCU herself. She produced um, the Hulk film. She kept working on the Terminator series. She's been working for a long time. So I wanted to give her a shout out. But Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio, right? She's deliberately written to be annoying, right? So she played it annoying. So I can't fault the actor for that. She was acting the part that Cameron directed her to perform. I did think it was funny when uh, Michael Bean's character, Lieutenant Coffee, put <laughs> duct tape over her mouth. Also, yeah. wait a minute. Did he? Did Cameron deliberately do this? He cast Michael Bean to play Coffee. That's Coffee funny. Bean. Yes, is that, that is that's, Coffee Bean? Like that couldn't be an accident, right? He just saw it on paper. He's like, "Oh, now we got to do it." Yeah, I, I got to bring Michael in for this. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like listeners will think that I'm my my lukewarm reception to uh, Mary Mary Elizabeth uh, Master Antonio is. A little unfair, but I think probably that just speaks more to how I thought her character was annoying. So yeah, she just she did her job. I don't think it's an unfair criticism of you to bring it up. I wouldn't say her acting is bad. I think she gives a great performance here. I do. Would it have been better with Jamie Lee Curtis? I don't know, maybe, but because of just the way the part was written, I don't know if it would have mattered. It would have been whoever played the character would have played it the way Cameron wrote it and directed them to do it, right? Like you would have to think. So it actually kind of brings me to a parallel of, okay, so, you know, we talked about the story where filming the CPR scene, repeatedly slapping her face, you know, she's exclaimed, you know, we're not animals, can't treat us this way. But of course, Cameron wants to get the right shot, wants to get the right emotion for the scene. Um, it really reminds me of, you know, we've talked about another very famous uh, director, of course, we're talking about Eyes Wide Shut. When I think about um, Stanley Kubrick, I think about even that scene in The Shining with Shelley Duvall, where it's the infamous uh, Here's Johnny scene. And I think hundreds of takes to elicit that same genuine reaction, fear, exhaustion. Kubrick, of course, making like his crew go through very intense, strenuous like hurdles to get the right shot. So we're we're seeing very similar things from obsessive directors to get what they need. And yeah, maybe it was all for the good of getting the right scene. But yeah, just something something I, I noticed. It's a good observation. I was looking at her filmography. I'm talking about Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio, which, by the way, it's the long. That name's too long. Just shorten that. Yeah. Should we just call her? Uh, should we just say Mary Elizabeth? Mary Liz. Yeah. She had a strange oh. career. Have you ever looked into at her filmography? I did. It's uh, not long. It's not long, but it, it's interesting. Her debut is Scarface, so mm-hmm. not bad, right? Right. Her second film is The Color of Money. She's great in that movie. And she even got an Oscar nomination for that. I didn't even realize that with Tom Cruise and Paul Newman. Mm -hmm. She did a couple other stuff in the 80s. This was a big one for her. And then two years after this, she's in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. She's made Marion. Doesn't do a whole lot the rest of the 90s. And then basically her last real role is in The Perfect Storm. But that's all the way back in 2000. 
So it's been a so while. So it's like very successful career, but to your point, she's not she wasn't in a lot of stuff. But if you're only gonna be in a handful of stuff, those films aren't bad. Now she did transition into more television roles. Like she was in the Netflix uh Punisher series. I remember her from that. And then I'm sure. Yeah. Which you know, not a not a huge role. She wasn't the lead. But other than that, like not really in a ton of stuff. Did want to call out though for listeners, you know, you mentioned Scarface. Um, this is the actress that of course played the younger sister Gina. Yes. You want to th- fuck me, Tony? <laughs> who I thought you want was, to fuck me? Who I thought was incredibly annoying in that film. Yeah, that was yeah. It's I'm not a Scarface fan. It's it has its fan base. <laughs> you want to fuck me, Tony? Yeah, weird. it was it was just, weird. just a weird scene. It was weird. Speaking of weird, Michael Bean. <laughs> I know there's a lot of Michael Bean fans. Apparently, the studio lobbied for him to get a Best Supporting Actor nomination for his performance in this film. Uh, I think he does an okay job of playing crazy in scenes, but. Mm-hmm. The problem for me is that he's crazy from the moment he shows up. I know he gets the shakes almost immediately, but it's just, uh, it's a very one-dimensional role. Again, it's taking away from what really should have been the central plot line, which was more of the alien stuff. Yes. There's no subtlety to his performance. There's just entire chunks of this film dedicated to him going crazy. And I think that's where the plot not really aligning well with with uh just any identity it, it what it, it's really what makes a character like that seem so one dimension one dimensional like you said just to kind of throw in a villain that's acting just insane yeah uh as far as the rest of the cast goes they're all fine you mentioned that they have good chemistry with each other i agree with that but there's no standouts they're all just kind of there the guy that plays catfish you know, he's fine. Yeah. There's a couple other faces I recognize, but there's no real great character actors. We get young Chris Elliott, but he's, of course, he's topside, right? He's not on the... Mm-hmm. What's, the what's the underwater station called? Deep Core? Deep Core. Yeah, it's, it's fine. I just... It, yeah. The story... There's just large gaps in the film that I don't find interesting. A lot of it's very boring to me, right? The stuff of coffee going crazy and doing crazy things, none of it interests me. And then once his character dies after the submersible fight, it's just a it's a heel turn, right? It, mm-hmm. We had this in semi riveting underwater thriller, and all of a sudden it turns into an underwater version of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. It's and a very strange <laughs> shift. It was, yeah, it it really was the the ending, or I was just feeling a little confused. Well, I mean, not just the ending, but it was very confusing. It's such a take that doesn't feel like it's it's not really planting its foot in one genre or the other and then it feels very uncomfortable i don't think we should actually spend a lot more time talking about the story or the ending because the film didn't either (laughs) it just kind of ends the ending is just pure cornball stuff like the the idea of an alien race changing their mind about wiping out humanity because of a single guy's memories of love is is just laughable oh wait no that's the special edition sorry yeah Uh, the special, the theatrical edition, it's equally cornball for me. There's no explanation really given to why the aliens save Bud and take him topside. The alien ship surfaces, everybody hugs and kisses each other, and then the film just ends. That's it. I know the special edition added a lot of context behind the story of the aliens and their motivation, but again, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the theatrical version, and 
when it comes to the story in the theatrical version, Anton, just the motivation of the aliens, it's not clearly defined at all. It's a huge flaw in the story. It's pretty insane to think about if the special edition includes even more aliens, even has this the power of love, save the world kind of ending. Do you think that they took things out of the film to make the pace better or is it just they just threw more things in. I don't see how the pace could have been improved by the special edition. You you can't make it 40 minutes longer and improve the pace. Right. And I don't know if it could improve the story. If more than more than anything, it just feels like then you really have some competing like genres and storylines. Knowing what I know about the special edition, it gave more context. But I, I mean, just reading the synopsis of the special edition, it just, it's just it's laughable. It's cornball stuff. I'm glad I haven't seen it, to be honest. Yeah, I don't feel the need to. Um, no, interesting. This is see, enough for yeah. me. This is this this was more than enough for me. I yeah. should say. Yeah, I had enough with the water tentacle. That's fine. Well, moving on. Last reason why this wasn't better: our thoughts on the production. Technically, this is one of the most impressive films I've ever seen. It's gorgeous. Agreed. It's going to be stunning to watch in 4K when it comes out. I mean, I'm really looking forward to that. I mean, I'm not that I'm going to watch this anytime soon, having just watched it twice, but. Mikhail Solomon, Michael Solomon, however you pronounce his name, he should have won the Best Cinematography Oscar. This is the best underwater photography ever put to film, full stop. Yeah, even even just considering the depths, funny, the depths that they went to to get those shots. It wasn't even just enough to be like, well, let's put like a cover on the camera. Let's build actual technology to make sure we can get yeah. the right shots. That's amazing. All of the lighting... It's a beautifully lit film, even all the interior scenes, the water reflecting off the walls and the actors' faces. It's really impressive stuff. Like I said, this is the beginning of James Cameron starting to flex, right, when it came to technology and pushing the envelope. This was the beginning of it. And Cameron himself, he stated years later that he didn't even realize how well Solomon had shot, had lit the film, as he didn't know enough about lighting at the time. Mm -hmm. It's some of the best combination of cinematography and production design that I've that I've seen. We mentioned it earlier. Cameron and Cameron and the production team, they really nailed the claustrophobia angle. All of the effects, they were groundbreaking at the time. They really hold up well today. There's you know, there's a handful of model shots here and there that look like models, but Considering this film is 35 years old, it's, I mean, technically, this film has aged like wine. It looks so good. Yeah. And I mentioned it before. It really does stick with you because it's not like a lot of, there, there's not a lot of films like it. No, even the CGI tentacle, like, yes, it it's primitive CGI, but it was such an enormous challenge for them to do it. And they don't rely on it too much, right? I think what... It was, what, 75 seconds of yeah. CGI? Yeah, not that long. Again, you can tell it's primitive CGI, but it looks cool. It really does. It has just an old school charm to it, right? There, I mean, you were right. Like, there there was nothing like this at the time. This, The CGI in this film walked so that Terminator 2 could run. Yep. And Cameron himself has stated that. Like, um, on the Terminator 2 director's commentary... He made it clear that we could not have done the CGI in this film if we hadn't done the Abyss first. We mentioned the miniatures, the underwater submersible fight. Pretty impressive, mm -hmm. right? There's a lot. The yeah. camera is really moving around a lot. Yeah, and you yeah. really get a sense of the, um, the weight and the depth and the scope of everything going on. All the design of the vehicles look good. The design of the aliens, even that was creative, even though the alien story was boring. The aliens themselves looked pretty cool, like the 
the small ship, the big ship, the aliens themselves. Very memorable. Yeah, memorable and something to appreciate. Cameron himself, I would say not the best screenwriter, but on a technical level, he is one of the most talented directors we've ever had. And The Abyss, for all of its flaws, it is one of the most technically impressive films that I have ever seen even 35 years later. It's amazing just to think about, like, you know, we have the end product film, right? And I talked about very early on in the episode, I said, you know, we have the the film, which like, of course, visually impressive, stunning. But when you think about the production and just how obsessive Cameron is about production, making a film, directing the film, it really is something about like artists and their passion and their craft. And it it really shows. I think of other directors directors that we've covered on the show and you see a lot of similarities where sometimes the most tumultuous production for the right reasons in terms of trying to get the right result usually when there's a strong vision you get a you get great results um and of course like i'm thinking of christopher nolan i think goes in that bucket of very obsessive really cares about the production you have uh, of course stanley kubrick now they all show it in different ways i think james cameron's a bit more hands-on in terms of how he directs things but it really is impressive to see what a strong vision can execute on for a film like the abyss so let's wrap it up give our ratings i'm happy to go first yeah so it's definitely been a bit since i saw the film it was probably like i said in high school and it stuck with me because there wasn't a lot of films like it I think that being a rewatching, it was really great to appreciate the effects, um, the way it looked, and knowing the production history and what the crew went through to just get those shots. You really just have to appreciate it. And while it does sound like it was traumatic, especially for Ed Harris. This was a crew that really put their heart and soul into what they were doing. And you can genuinely see that technically spot on. And that definitely brings up the film a bit, but it's on the other side of it in terms of the plot and the pacing. So I'm, you know, I'm like you, Pat, I'm a story guy. So I feel like without that to really drive the story forward like it's great to have beautiful scenery but i think that a stronger story would have definitely probably brought this film to you know extraordinary heights especially when you already have the visuals to boot but especially for early cameron if this is james cameron's like not the best like it's still much much better than a lot of like superior to a lot of films that are out there yeah it's i'm gonna go ahead and put this film at a c plus I agree with pretty much everything you said. I enjoyed this film. I certainly don't think this is an underrated masterpiece. Just based on the technical elements alone, how good it looks, there's no way I could rate this below a C. It's a very interesting film. The potential was there. You can see where they spent the money, right? It's mm-hmm. it's not surprising this was the most expensive film ever made at the time, right? Technically, it's just about flawless. Best underwater photography ever put to film. The visual effects were astonishing for 1989 and really hold up in a nice way today. There are several shots where I'm not entirely sure how they pulled it off because it was so, the camera was moving around so much. Production design is top tier. If you have a good sound system, this is a great movie to watch. It just has these storytelling flaws, right? It's really boring in large chunks of the film. The whole thing's underwater, so everything just moves slower. The pacing is slow. 
And the alien part of the story, which is supposedly very important, it takes too long to develop and it's not clearly defined. I don't care for the ending at all. I like the performances of Ed Harris and Mary Liz. Everybody else was fine. No offense to Michael Coffee Bean. We didn't even mention the score by Alan Silvestri. I think it's quite good. Mm-hmm. I like it. It's solid science fiction, but there just isn't enough science fiction. It's like too much Hunt for Red October and not enough Close Encounters, if that's what Cameron intended. I can't call it a classic. It has a bit of an odd legacy for me because it exists, like I feel like, just outside of mainstream popular culture. It's so well made and it is entertaining in parts, but it's not even close to being on the same level of, of Cameron's masterpieces, right? of Titanic, Terminator 2, Aliens. I said I couldn't rate it below a C, and just based on the technical merits, I have to agree with you about the C-plus rating. That's that's what I'm going to give it. Very well said. Well, The Abyss. Yeah. Can't wait to get the mail from The Abyss lovers, but hey, that's okay. That's it for uh, The Abyss. That's it. That's that's all we have. That's it. It, There's... not a day goes by that I'm I'm thankful that I can always remember Mr. Bean. I wonder how many people have called him that. Gets really too annoyed. many, not enough. He's like, I was sure. Kyle Reese. Yeah, yeah. This was uh, was this his final film collaboration with Cameron? Yeah. Oh. He no, technically no. He is in the director's cut of Terminator Two, but he's not in the theatrical release. That's fair. There's a there's a deep cut for all you T two heads out there. Well, that's it. For The Abyss, next week you can expect another James Cameron film when we talk about True Lies for its 30th anniversary. Can can I make one more uh, fun connection? Of course. I talked about The Rock earlier with Ed Harris. Oh, good one. Yeah, who was was Commander Charles Anderson? Yeah, it got flipped on him. I will not give that order! (laughs) Michael Bean. There we go. You can say whatever you want. You're down there. We're up here. You walked into the wrong goddamn room. Ah, that's such a fun movie. Have to watch it again soon. I love The Rock. All righty. Yeah. Well, that's it for The Abyss. Um, yeah, next week, True Lies. Look out for that. Take care, everyone. Take care. Take care.